you on it. This morning, we're going to start into a new series. We've begun this, sermon, this summer with the intent of growing to know God better, not just getting more information to float around in our head about God, but to know Him better, to walk with Him more intimately, to, to be a part of, of what He's doing, and, and, and growing to a place where who He is doesn't just impact our life in thought, but in deed as well. So, for example, in our last series, we talked about his, his attributes, and we looked at how his attributes directly affect us. In his greatness, his glory, his goodness, and his grace, all of those have a, a part to play in how we walk and how we live day to day. And we saw that over and over. If you missed any of that series, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it is some of the most relevant, practical teaching that, that we've done here at The Way. And, and it's not that I, we don't strive for relevant practical teaching always, but this in particular, I think it helps us build a perspective to walk day to day just knowing that God's with us. But we don't want to stop there. And this whole summer is going to be about this. And that's why I told you at the beginning of it that we're going to do these little mini-series that, that will help us gain this understanding. And so we're going to move from looking at his personality traits. That's really what his attributes are. It's the personality traits of God. It's how we define him or actually how he's defined himself, how he's shown himself in Scripture. And he says, these are the things that would describe me. Kind of like I'm a, you know, I'm a, well, let me just explain myself the way I'd like to be explained. I'm, I'm easily loved, you know, easygoing. No, nobody ever has anything against me kind of guy. You know, I'm just, I'm just one of those guys that everybody likes. You just want to be around me, right? I mean, that's, that's how I would define myself, or at least how I'd want to be defined maybe. But the reality is, is God's shown us himself in those personality traits. But we don't stop getting to know God just in his personality traits. We can also know God, and we can see these personality traits and, and get to know him better as we also look at the work he's chosen to do in the world. And his mission in the world is, is pretty clear. If you, if you spend any time reading the Bible, start in Genesis and read through to the end. God has an overarching plan. Along the way, you can get lost in details. I mean, you can get caught up in, in lists of names and so-and-so begets so-and-so and so-and-so begets so-and-so. And you can get caught up in these details, but the reality is each piece of those puzzles and each detail feeds into an overarching, uh, overarching work that God has set out to do. He created he allowed the fall. He chose to allow the fall. He decided to allow that to happen. He was the one that instituted the choice. He said, don't eat of the fruit. And he allowed the serpent to go in and tempt Adam and Eve. He allowed it to happen. He didn't cause it. He didn't force him. He gave them a choice. And they chose and they fell and they rebelled against him. But he did that for one great and amazing and mighty purpose. See, God had already decided before the foundations of the world, before he ever said, let there be light, before he ever separated the waters in the heavens and the waters below, and before the, the land ever came out and he put boundaries on the seas, before that moment ever took place, God had decided to redeem a people to himself. He'd already decided. It was already done. Jesus had already been determined to be the Savior. See, God had already decided he was going to redeem. But it wasn't just about redemption. It wasn't just about Jesus coming and dying on a cross and rising and going into heaven and us dying and putting our bodies in the ground and spirits floating into heaven and sitting around with the angels playing their little harps on the clouds. That's not what God intended to do. 
You see, the overarching story of the Bible doesn't stop with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus propel us to the moment when Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. See, one day you're going to stand in your flesh and you're going to see with your own eyes the God who created you, the Savior who saved you. And you're going to know the Spirit fully and completely that now indwells you. See, one day all of this that's broken is going to be put back together and restored. You see, God has a plan to redeem and restore His creation. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's the work that God has set out to do. And we can come to know him in it. We can begin to see him and know him better because of it. And maybe the best place we can start is really where Jesus starts. For He, he takes his time. In John chapter 6, Jesus takes his time and he, he stops. He stops doing miracles, even though he's being encouraged by people to do miracles. He, 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 quits, he quits calling them to see anything but him. So we're going to take the next few weeks and we're going to look at John chapter 6 and we're going to see a summary of what God has chosen to do. A summary of God's plan to work, to redeem and restore an understanding, a build an understanding that as we understand, as we see his work, that we'll be emboldened and encouraged to think, to know, to gain confidence in the fact that salvation, redemption and restoration, that's God's work. You see that what he says he's going to do, he will do. You see, I, 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 I think that it's unfortunate the culture we live in, the, the, the religious practices that we've been given, I think it's unfortunate that, that all too often it gives us a small perspective of salvation. It gives us a small window to look through to understand what God is doing. It's kind of like sitting in this room right now. We're sitting in this room, the, the lights are down, and we can kind of see outside. I think it's sunny. Well, I remember I came in from outside. It was nice. But we have no real understanding of what's going on out there. We've got a small perspective. And I think, unfortunately, in many times, in many cases, we're given a perspective or an understanding of salvation that's like that. And so we need someone to come in from the outside to come into our existence and reveal to us what, what, what we can't see. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, what Jesus did is he steps out of eternity and into our, or our, into our finite existence, revealing an infinite and eternal perspective. So the next few weeks, that's what we're going to strive to see what Jesus taught, taught us about what God was doing. Maybe there is no better place to start than where he started in John 6. As he was confronted and, and questioned, or teaching people about their dangerous appetites. See, as, as he taught them about their dangerous appetites, he began to help them understand why they needed him to work in the first place. He began to help them understand and see why he needed to do anything to begin with. I mean, have you ever questioned that? Have you ever wondered? I'm a pretty good person. Do, do I really need God to work on my behalf? Do I really, do, why do I need to be saved? 
I'm generous. I'm loving. I care about people. Why, do, why does God need to save me? In the culture that we live in, in Springfield, Missouri, number six most biblically minded city in the nation. That's a, a poll just revealed that a few months ago, a couple months back. We are surrounded. We are surrounded by people who believe in folk theologies. My, my, my friend Dave gave me that. Folk theology. It's made up stuff. Doesn't have any standing in Scripture. A, a, a misunderstanding of what Jesus has done for them. A, a totally misunderstood perspective of who they are in Christ. But Jesus says no. Before you can really begin to understand the depths and the breadth of my work, you need to begin to understand the depths and the breadth of who you are without me. And so he showed these people in, in John chapter 6, people that would seem to be noble on the outside. He showed them their dangerous appetites. And when I say dangerous appetites, I'm not talking about eating too much red meat and slopping butter all over everything, you know, ruining your vegetables with butter and making them tasty. That's not what I'm talking about. That might kill you physically. But the dangerous appetites that I'm talking about, the dangerous appetites that Jesus refers to kill you forever. They, they make you dead spiritually. So let's just, let's just read it. Let's look at it and, and work it together. We come into the middle of the chapter. I'm going to give you some context in just a minute. But let's begin reading John chapter 6. We'll start in verse 22. We'll read all the way through 27. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus had, no, had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten in the, the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And we're going to stop there. Let's just stop there. Let's build the, build the context. I need to, you, you need to be in the scene. You need to understand what's going on. The day before, Jesus is with his disciples. They'd climbed up on a mountain, and from where they sat on the mountain, they could see a crowd coming. And this wasn't a crowd of like 100 or 200 people. The, the scripture tells us that there was 5,000 men. This, I mean, they were leaving a dust trail. There were so many of them. And, and most and many scholars have estimated numbers upwards of 20,000 people because of the women and children that would have likely been there as well. So, so you're talking about this huge mass of people coming at them. And Jesus says to his disciples, where are we going to get enough food to feed these people? Now, his disciples, they haven't even given thought to feeding them because they don't, I mean, that's impossible. And he institutes this little struggle within them. He, he, he interjects them th this, this question and it causes a little struggle in them and they discuss it back and forth and they try to come up with their answers and eventually Jesus solves their problem. Andrew had found a little boy with two fish and five loaves and I think it was almost like, well, hey, this is all we got. And Jesus, hey, you got me. That's enough. And he gives thanks over that food and he begins to just break it and divide it. And as he divides it, he's multiplying it. And, and, and so what's happening is he's pulling off these pieces of bread and the bread doesn't quit being broken. I mean, this is, I mean, it should give you chill bumps at some level because this, these loaves, you know, they're like going to fit in the palm of your hand and maybe you break it into four pieces. But he just kept breaking it. 
And these two fish, I mean, come on, fish, if you're not talking a marlin or something like that, they're not going to go very far, right? I'm picturing now, you know, Jesus, he, he takes it and they get it filleted out and he starts just pulling meat off of these fish. Just keeps passing it out, filling up these baskets. Get, take, take, on, take that to that group over there. He just keeps breaking it off. There's a group that hasn't eaten over there. Breaking it off. Oh, there's, there's people over there. They're still hungry. They didn't just get first. They got seconds and maybe even thirds because they ate until they were full of five loaves and two fish. Oh, Jesus, man, he was in, in the midst of this, his power and his presence, his, his rule, sovereign rule over all creation, his greatness, his glory, his goodness, and his grace was seen. You see it? God is so great that not even five loaves and two fish stop him. So God is so good that he provides for us until we are full. God is so gracious. That crowd didn't do anything to deserve it, but he wanted to give them his goodness. You see it? Well, here they were. These people, man, they're eating, they're getting their fill. Oh, man, probably the best. I don't know if it's like fried catfish or, you know, I don't, I don't know. Eating it till they're just done. I, I can't eat another bite. Kind of like we did on 4th of July. For those that came over, we went through 24 hamburgers and 18 brats, and there weren't that many people there. I'm just saying. I know who ate the most, too. I won't call him out right here. You know who you are. The reality is this, though. These people ate better than that. They were full, and there was leftovers. Well, they see it. They see it. They understand something's just happened. They say, this is the prophet that's been foretold to us. Oh, this guy's from God. He's gone down. He's going he's gonna to speak with, with authority, and he's going to teach us with authority. He's this prophet we've been waiting for. Our kingdom is going to be restored. I think that's what's going through their mind. In fact, they didn't just stop at calling him a prophet. They wanted to make him a king. Right then, right there, they were ready. Oh, you're our king. Jesus wasn't going to have that. He sent his disciples away. He goes up to a mountain by himself and prays. And that night, the disciples, he sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. They had just come across the Sea of Galilee. Now they're going to go back. Jesus says, go back, go to Capernaum. I'll, I'll see you. Be careful. Take care. Love you guys. He goes up on a mountain. He spends some time praying and just spending time with his father. And from where he's at on this mountain, I think this is another supernatural event. He looks out and he sees his disciples in a boat struggling. They had been fighting all night to get across this sea. They've been fighting and fighting and fighting. And all they could do is get to the middle and they couldn't go any further. Jesus goes to him, walks across the water, meets them in the middle, and the scripture says immediately, another supernatural event, immediately they reach dry ground. You know, it's not like they had made it two inches from the shore and Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to get you there. They were fighting it. They were stuck. He meets them in the middle of the sea, gets them to dry ground. The next morning comes, the sun comes up, and all these people, you know what happens in the morning when you wake up? You get hungry, right? I mean, most of us like to eat breakfast. I do. They were hungry. They start looking around. 
Now, the number of boats at the dock are the same. We saw the disciples leave in one, but the, all the other boats are here. Where, where, where's Jesus? They start looking. They can't find him. Some other people from Tiberias, it's another city that's across the Sea of Galilee. Another group of people show up in boats. So now the crowd grows. They hear the story. They want to see this dude that has just separated or multiplied these fish and these, the, and, and these, the, these loaves of bread. They're all excited. And I don't know how many of them. I don't know if it's 20,000. I don't know if it's 30,000. I don't know if it's 10,000. I don't know, but I know a bunch of them get in boats and they go across the sea to find the disciples. All the while, hoping they find Jesus. And when they get there, when they show up, you know, all of a sudden, they're like, Jesus. They're asking this question with some, some sense of, you shouldn't be here. How did you get here? When, when did you come to be here? I, the boats were all there. If you'd have walked, I, I think you'd still be walking. How did you get here? But Jesus doesn't deal with that. In fact, what Jesus does in this moment, I think, is one of the most critical lessons we can ever learn. Because Jesus doesn't tell them what they think they need to know. He does this over and over in the scripture. You can see it. Just go look at all the questions that are presented to him. And oftentimes, he, people are asking him a question, and he doesn't give them the answer they think they need to know. But see, what Jesus begins to do as he answers their question See, he begins to deal with the motives of why they're asking. Jesus, how did you get to be here? He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, why do you want to know? But really, his answer shows them why they wanted to know. Let's just keep reading. Let's just pick back up with the question. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. See, what Jesus wants these people to learn is that understanding the motives that move us will reveal the appetites that destroy us. Hear it again. Understanding the motives that move us will reveal the appetites that destroy us. Why did these people look for Jesus? Because they were hungry. You ate bread. You, you, he, Jesus knew that they'd seen the sign. Jesus knew that they'd seen the miracle. Jesus knew that they were following him. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 2, it says that they were following him and this crowd was coming to him because they'd seen him working miracles and healing the sick. So Jesus knew that, they, that they'd seen him working powerful miracles. Jesus knew that they'd seen the, the bread divide. That He knew that they knew that there was two fish and five loaves. But he also knew that they didn't discern what it meant or the reason he was doing it. You, see, you didn't see the sign. You're not coming to me because of who I am. You're coming to me because I fed you food. And you want more food. You see, their motive was all wrong. Their, their, their motive was totally misplaced. Their desire was, 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 was for the wrong thing. Their, their appetite 
for food made them miss the appetite for their Savior. They'd say, I want to make him king. He's the prophet. But I really want his food. I'm hungry. And I want him to feed me. What do you think they would have done as soon as he was king? Hey, we made you king. You need to take care of us now. You need to do what we say. You need to be the king that we installed. You need to be the leader that we expect you to be. Make some more bread. Give us more fish. And, and raise our kingdom to one that's honored among other kingdoms. You see, their motives, their, their perspectives, their desires, their appetites were for the wrong thing. And we see this happening every time we do free events here. I'm not thinking we should stop doing free events. I mean, Jesus didn't quit working miracles just because people misunderstood them. But we did a movie night not long ago, an outdoor movie night. It had a great turnout. There was like 70 or 80 some people here. We cooked hot dogs, hamburgers. We ended up getting into hamburgers because we ran out of hot dogs. We gave away every drink that we bought. We gave away, um, I, I don't know, candy, popcorn, just all the movie stuff. We gave it all away. And people seemed really appreciative of it at first. And then we ran out. You know, at one point I was in here and I found a family going through our cabinets in the kitchen looking for more stuff. Really? I had one woman tell me, well, I got a lot of kids who need drinks. Now, now, now mind you, we had given away four or five, six sodas, bottles of water, uh, I don't know what those little pouches are called, Capri Suns. Till we were gone, till they were done, four and five per person. You see, in, in that moment, you begin to see people's motives. Now, it's not normal that you can walk up and discern somebody's motives. Don't look at somebody and just think that you know their motives, okay? That's, that's dangerous. Jesus knew, and he knows you. But in this illustration, don't you begin to see that that as they were beginning to do that and just asking for more and more and more, they weren't coming to see who we were as a people. They weren't looking for the Jesus or the, that, that best thing we have to offer. They just wanted more free stuff. That's exactly what was happening with, these, with this crowd. It would be great. It would be amazing, actually. It would be much easier to preach this sermon if I could leave it at those people. But I can't leave it at those people. Because I recognize this in my own life. And I know you. Some of you I know better than others. And I know you have some very dangerous appetites that are driven by motives that are leading you to destruction that you're seeking everything but Jesus. You see, the scripture teaches us that the reality of this truth is not just an issue of what we desire, but our very nature. We act this way because of who we are. And Paul wrote it in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. 
listen to that again. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So Jesus says he's standing there. Do you hear the correlation in the, in the language? You're not seeking me. You're seeking bread and fish. You're, you're not seeking me. You don't, you don't want me. You, you're probably seeking to control me and rule over me and, and me to be who you demand me to be. You see, in, in these verses from Romans, there's only one person in all of history who this does not directly apply to, and he happens to be the eternal God who wrapped himself in flesh and dwelt among us. But for the rest of us, oh man, it just came to, that's the one we were singing about. You know the one and we said his great name, at the sound of his great name, the enemy has to leave. At the sound of, the great, of his great name, the weak are saved, the fatherless are, are, are given fathers. At the sound of his great name, he's our redeemer, our savior. By his blood alone we are healed. He is the holy, holy, holy one that we sang of. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. That's the one that these verses don't apply to. But for the rest of us, no one seeks God. You see, it's not so much that he looks at us and says, you could have done better. God knows that our nature is to not seek him. He knows that we are depraved and fallen and sinful people that will act only in one way, and that's to serve ourselves. Look at these people, this crowd. Seeking Jesus, right? Looks really noble. They're doing a good thing. And where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? They're even telling people about Jesus. This man, he broke bread, he broke fish, we all ate. It was amazing. We loved it. How, <coughs> excuse me, how good it was to be in this moment. We saw him the other day make a blind man see, when a lame man walk, a deaf man hear. It was amazing. Noble things, right? Until they walk up to Jesus and Jesus and, and ask a simple question. How'd you get here? And Jesus didn't say it, but I mean in his answer, that's not what you need to worry about. What you need to worry about is that you're not really seeking me. You're seeking the bread because your bellies are empty and you want them to be full. Even the most noble attempts of fallen people are depraved actions. Even the most noble attempts of fallen people are depraved actions because they come out of a fallen and depraved nature. And Jesus, in the midst of this, he knows that the, the, the things we naturally desire, he knows they come from our sinful nature and that they'll never bring us satisfaction or salvation. He knows it. And so he says it to him. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. Do you see where that leads? 
The food that perishes leads you to perishing with it. But Jesus doesn't want that. And so he tells them, don't, don't work for the food that perishes, but work that, for, for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't mistake what he's saying. It's, it's not wrong to eat when you're hungry. It's not wrong to go to work to earn a paycheck and, <coughs> and be able, <coughs> excuse me, and, and to be able to, to put food on the table so that you can have a meal and you and your family can eat and be healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what Jesus is saying. See, things get bad when we think that meeting our physical desires are, will solve all the issues that we have. When, when meeting our physical appetites or serving our physical appetites will answer the issues of satisfaction and identity that we have. It, 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 it begins to be that, that we think that if we can just get this thing fixed, if I can just have that bread, if I can just have that meal, if I can just have that car, if I can just have that wife, if I can just have this if, or that, when we get that, then, we, oh, then I'm going to be happy. Jesus says those desires are food that perishes. I mean, think about it. What are some of the, what are some of the things that we desire in our culture? Those dangerous appetites that we, st- that, that we spend so much effort and energy and money and time feeding. Entertainment. I, I think we're probably one of the most entertained generations that has ever existed. I mean, I don't, I don't just have to, I don't, I don't just watch TV. I play games on my iPad. And, and, and I'm just telling you, it's, if, if there's not something going on in the background, I feel dull. I got to put some music on or put something streaming in the background so I could hear it. Because we like to be entertained. You know, so it's, but, but, but entertainment, it's like a ride at the amusement park. Well, you got to drive to get there. Then you got to pay the price to get in the park. Then you got to stand in line to get on the ride. And once you get on the ride, you get 30 seconds, maybe, maybe 120 seconds of this fun of being twisted and turned and thrown around and your body being put into dangerous. I mean, you enjoy the risk. The free falls of roller coasters, that weightlessness as you go over those peaks. It's amazing and fun. But what happens when the ride comes to an end? Well, that process starts all over. You've got to find another line to stand in. Cook in the sun, because most of them ain't thinking about the guy standing in the line. Well, what happens when entertainment fails us? Or, or, or maybe let me ask it this way. What happens when our health fails us? What happens when all of a sudden our health is, is, is falling apart and all of a sudden we're faced with this this horrible news that we've got some horrible disease what happens to our entertainment does it mean anything to us then is that what's important in that moment man i gotta watch the next episode of psych i like that show but i you know i think if the doctor told me that i had some horrible if i had some flesh-eating bacteria eating on my skin i think the last thing i'd be thinking about psych or anything else that might entertain me Entertainment, we, we, we desire, it's an appetite that we strive for. Material possessions. Oh man, we pursue material possessions. We, we, we live in a culture where to be Christian is to be wealthy. I mean, think about what happens in Springfield, Missouri and the way it's divided. Think about the culture that we live in. 
Yeah, Christianity is synonymous with being wealthy. We spend time and effort pursuing wealth. We, we spend time and effort and money to, to, to accumulate things. I just have the, the house, the car. Some of us, you know, some of us have, have this idea that, man, well, you heard me talk about it earlier. Earlier, We have a certain amount of money that, that we just don't want to fall below. But is it because we trust in that money for our security and comfort? No. And some of you have, have limits in your bank accounts, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's probably commendable. Don't fall below those limits and, and set them with wisdom but don't ever begin to trust in it. What happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when your portfolio dries up because money isn't eternally stable? What happens? It perishes. In our culture, we are sex obsessed. We are obsessed with sex. Don't believe me? Think of the TV shows you watch, the sitcoms that you pay attention to, the billboards that are around town in the number six most biblically-minded city in the nation, mind you. Think about it. Think about, think, think, think about how we dress our children or, or we allow children to dress. Did you know that Springfield right now is looking to to add homosexual and transgender language to its non-discrimination clauses in, in its city codes. I'm not here to argue that point. I'm, I'm just saying sex, it, it's become something that isn't just something we do, but it identifies who we are. So we have taken homosexuality and moved it away from a, a morality issue and made it a civil rights issue. Because if we don't allow homosexual people to get married, we are, we are removing a right that they deserve. It's a civil rights issue. You're, you're, you're a bigot if you don't agree or, or, or stand in line with homosexual marriage. We're obsessed. It, it totally has, has redefined our culture. Is sex bad? No. God gave us sex. In fact, in the beginning, one of the, one of the first commands he gave was be fruitful and multiply. Do you think that was just going to happen by them thinking about it? No, he expected them to have sex. He expected them to do that. Now, he made us so that we could do it and enjoy it. But it's only good in the right in the right frame of reference. Everything outside of that frame of reference, outside of, his outside of his design, is in actual rebellion of him, rebellion towards him. But, but let me just ask you, I mean, because we're so sex-obsessed, what happens when, when the sex is over? When the climax has happened and it's done? Man, let me ask you. As you're sitting and looking at your computer screens, and it's finished. Do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel satisfied? Ladies, 
as you talk with that man at your job that makes you feel so warm and comfortable and you long for him. When he walks away and you see your husband's face, do you feel satisfied? Do you feel good inside? Sex is going to lead you. Sex is going to lead you on a path that perishes. Oh, but we give so much to it. We hide it. We keep it secret because we long for it. We desire it. Sex is a dangerous appetite. Oh, it's not just these things that morally we can we can mark out as saying, oh, we know that's a bad thing. These people were seeking Jesus. They've been telling people about Jesus. Why, why are you here today? Why'd you show up? Are you at church seeking Jesus? Are you checking a box because it's always what you've done? Or if I go to church enough, Jesus will love me. If, if I go to church enough, I'll get saved. If, if I go to church enough, people think I'm good. We still live in a culture where it's a stigma. There's a, a cultural stigma for people not going to church. And that's why when you ask people in this culture, in Springfield, Missouri, we live in a place where you ask people if they go to church, they say, yeah, I go to church. They, because they don't want to say they don't. And so you push a little bit. Well, what church do you go to? I, uh, um, uh, um, they can't tell you the name. Oh, well, what's the pastor's name? If you, maybe I'll know if you tell me the pastor. Uh, the and that's that's where we live. And the sad truth is, I'm going to be as direct and compassionate and tender as I can in this moment. The sad truth is there's many of you that come to this church that think that God's going to give you something because of it. That Jesus isn't enough for you. I know. Uh, not at our church. Not, not in a church. I mean, you've chosen to come to a small church plant because you love knowing that people are going to come to know Jesus here. Oh, it wouldn't happen. In a church like this, we're too good. Why do you do what you do? You see, that's what Jesus was getting at. He wanted them to see the motives of their heart. And I'm, I'm not saying go away and don't come back. Please come back with all the wrong motives you got and, and let us help you find Jesus and find that he's enough because he's enough. But Jesus wanted them to understand that they needed to ask why they did what they did. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Because our dangerous appetites, they reveal, or our, I'm sorry, our, our motives reveal those appetites that lead us into destruction. We need to know. And Jesus, and he goes on, you know, here's the, here's the beauty of this lesson and here's the grace in this passage. Even as I tell you and talk to you about your fallen nature and that you are undeserving, but God did it anyway, the beauty is that Jesus doesn't just stop at what's wrong. Even in this passage, he's already telling them there is an answer. Don't work for the food that, that perishes. 
but for the food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. On God, or on him, God has set his seal. There is an answer. And I'm gonna skip down just a little bit, just real quickly. John 6, 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He is the answer. It's not what he has to offer, it's him. It's him. He's the one we're to feast on. He's the one that we're to long for. He's the one that our appetites should be satisfied by. Whoever comes to me, hear the promise, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's eternal. That's forever. Never hunger. Never thirst. Sex leaves you empty. Material wealth will lead you wanting. Church life, for the sake of church life, what happens when we disappoint you? What happens when the pastor confronts you? What happens when the people you thought were your friends don't measure up to your expectations? Entertainment will leave you bored and alone and empty. See, Jesus doesn't rebuke us just to highlight the problem, but to call attention to the answer. Jesus doesn't just rebuke you to call, to call, call you out. He wants you to know the truth. He wants you to see the answer. He wants you to come to Him because only He is enough. Our problem is not that we just desire the things of the world too much, but also that we desire Jesus too little. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, and you've probably heard me use this quote before. It's one of, one of my favorites. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. Now, I want you to think about this. C.S. Lewis lived some time ago. Drink and sex and ambition not much different than the things we pursue and those dangerous appetites that we chase after today. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will not thirst or hunger ever, 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 ever again. Never again. You will be satisfied. Don't be fooled and teased by your dangerous appetites. Only Jesus can satisfy. Now I want to close this out just with a challenge. I told you, that we, we've, we talked about this, I've said it over and over, this, this summer is about us coming to know God, to get to know this Jesus, to find Him, to seek Him, to walk with Him intimately. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to encourage you to do something along with me. 
over the next 60 days, I'm going to read through the New Testament. There's a, if, if you have a phone uh, or, or a tablet that has the Version Bible app on it, there's a 60 days, 60 day New Testament journey, I think is the name of it. I sent you an email this morning. You should, everybody that's on the mailing list should have received it in that email. There's a, either a PDF reading guide or on that PDF reading guide, there's a link to this Bible reading plan. I'm going to ask you not just to sit down and read the Bible just to say I did it. Oh, I want, I want Pastor Seth to think I'm doing this. That's a dangerous appetite. You see? It's not my approval you need. I, 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 my pat on the back is, only goes so far as my pat on the back. I want you to read with me and seek Jesus. I want you just to seek him. And the promise of the scripture says that when we seek him, we will find him. When we come close to God, he comes close to us. See, I have no doubt that if we do this, if we spend the next 60 days, that leads us through to the end of summer, just right into the very beginning of September, just before Labor Day. If we'll do this together, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that this summer will not be spent in vain in our church. That we will be walking more closely with Jesus as we seek Jesus. So I, I've, I've done it in a couple ways. I've, I've given you a piece of paper there on the back table. If you look right there at the curvature of that little desk, they're sitting right there in the middle. There's papers. If you don't have a phone or a tablet, if you don't like looking at email and you want a piece of paper that you can stick in your Bible, I, I've printed off 20 of those. They're front and back. You're welcome to take one. I'll print more if you need them. But I would encourage you, if you're not reading the Bible in some way, even if you're reading the Bible in some way, I'd encourage you to join with us as your church family. Take some time. Do this with us together seeking Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good. You're gracious. Jesus, thank you so much for bringing us this truth, for revealing our motives and our dangerous appetites. Jesus, thank you for giving us the answer. Thank you so much for allowing us to know allowing us to know that you didn't just you're not just pointing out our faults to make us feel bad or to bring guilt, but that you're showing us ourselves so that we can learn that we have nothing of ourselves to stand on. God, would you, in this moment, through your spirit, Holy Spirit, please rest on our hearts. Bring that conviction that only you can bring And point us to the place of rest. Point us to Jesus. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name.